Well, hello, friends, and welcome to episode 97 of the Burden and Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon. Today's guest comes to us from our friends over at C.S. Lewis and Company Publicists, and her name is Dr. Marilyn Gist. Marilyn is an expert on leader development. Her academic career spans the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, the University of Washington, where she held the Boeing and Down Professorship of Business Management, and Seattle University, where she was formerly Associate Dean at the Albers School of Business and Economics and Executive Director of the Center of Leadership Formation. She speaks and consults with organizations worldwide, including Boeing, AT&T, Providence Health System, the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, and NASA. Now, in this conversation we're going to have today, we're going to talk quite a bit about her work and specifically her book, The Extraordinary Power of Leader Humility, Thriving Organizations Get Results. Uh, This was a great conversation. There's not a whole lot I can add to it here on the front end other than just to say uh, you are in for a treat. Uh, Dr. Just has some great insight into leadership and what makes great leaders work and what makes great organizations tick. So I'm just going to be quiet, get out of the way, and let you get into this amazing interview with Dr. Marilyn Just. All right. Well, Dr. Just, uh, thanks for joining me and my listeners today. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is wonderful, Earl, and feel free to call me Marilyn. Oh, well, I always like to give people, you know, it's it's one of those funny things. Uh, I've noticed a lot of people who have uh, the, the ability to put doctor in front of their name are a little bit reluctant to do so. And it's kind of a fitting <laughs> theme since we're going to be talking a little bit about humility today, right? <laughs> That's true. I suppose it is. <laughs> well, before we get into that theme, uh, let me start you off where I start everybody with that kind of foundational question of the show. Sure. When you hear the term burden of command, what does that mean to you? You know, there, there are two things that stand out for me about that. Um, one, in terms of burden, if you will, that there is a responsibility to care for other people, to guide them in certain ways. And with that, your own personality, your own ethics, uh, your own value system uh, is going to have an impact. And so I I care a great deal about that. And that feels at times a little burdensome. I think of it more as just an opportunity uh, that I want to carry. The other thing is that there's certain tasks that go with leadership. Uh, Leaders have a unique responsibility to create vision and um, you know, set up uh, appropriate strategies for that and, and to ensure that there is good implementation. And so the, the burden, if you will, is that those things fall to the leader and you've got to be the one that makes sure it, that it happens. Mm-hmm. I love that. Now, as we were talking in our uh, kind of pre-workup, uh, you are probably one of the only, maybe the only, is certainly one of the very few guests I've had on this podcast that have uh, like an actual background teaching leadership. So could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So I have spent uh, much of my career in higher education. I've been 
on the faculty at uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, University of Washington here in Seattle, and then finished out my academic career as a uh, associate dean and head of executive programs at Seattle U. And most of what I've done over that period of time is really uh, build and lead and teach in uh, executive programs. So mid-career audiences, probably upper 20s through, I'd say, early 50s, uh, who are in some sort of leadership role in an organization. Uh, some are entrepreneurial, some are working for big, big companies, and then kind of everything in between. I love it. So you, you've got a good mix of kind of like the the classroom with practical application, right? Yes, and an amazing number of war stories that I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love it. I think we'll get into uh, get into a bunch of those during these. Uh, so, again, for listeners, uh, Marilyn's book is "The Extraordinary Power of Leader Humility," and I love this, right? Because I think humility is one of those kind of underrated leadership qualities. Uh, but I love where you kind of start the book off, uh, because this is something I've said on this podcast a bunch of times, and I'm, I'm happy to see somebody like you putting it in print because it, it makes me feel very validated when I say it, because I'm sure my listeners are getting tired of hearing it. But at the very beginning, chapter one, leading as a relationship. And I say on here a lot, you know, leadership is just another relationship. Everything it takes to make a personal relationship work is the same things it takes to make a leadership relationship work. So what is your take on that? I would say absolutely. And and I think the one of the least discussed and most important elements of leadership is that it is a relationship. You're not an individual contributor right? And if no one's following you, uh, you're not really leading. So at the end of the day, it's about a relationship. And, and what makes leadership really special is that you're relating to many, many people. And then to add to that, many different groups of people. So most leaders, particularly by mid-management on, uh, have a lot of stakeholder groups. They have employees, they have customers, they have their own senior management, they have boards, uh, they have maybe some interface with regulators, they might have uh, people who are in their supply chain, vendors, they may have community activists who are concerned about the impact of what they're doing on the, the neighboring communities, uh, and on and on and on. And so um, what a lot of people struggle with, especially early in a leadership career, is that they They've been an expert contributor, uh, and all of a sudden it feels like these relationship pieces are kind of getting in the way of the job they want to do. And if they can make that mental shift and realize that my job now is master of relationships, <laughs> uh, and then begin to think about how do I work that, how do I strengthen those, and how do I work it most effectively, they'll find that they can get a whole lot more accomplished because in essence, they have to work through other people to do it. And that is a very uh, interesting position for a leader to take is, is that being able to realize how much they are relying on other people on the team. And that's where 
you know, your, your book comes in with humility and leadership, right? Right. So, um, some of the people I interviewed for the book, as you know, I interviewed a number of uh, key executives and I, I had also talked with many kind of mid to uh, junior executive level people as, uh, as well. And some people are confused by the term at first. They have an association of the word humility with meaning meekness or weakness. And they don't see that as consistent with being a good leader because they think leaders need confidence, they need strength, uh, which they definitely do. And I talk about that in the book as well. But the the angle on humility I'm coming from is the one that ties to relationship. And it's really this ability to feel and display deep regard for other people's dignity. And mm-hmm. what's kind of interesting, we don't in our culture talk a whole lot about dignity, but dignity is somebody's sense of self-worth. And we all have and need a sense of self-worth. And the rub is that nobody's dignity is more important than anybody else's. <laughs> we might think, you know, we have more education or a bigger job or more money, bigger house, bigger car, more kids, whatever, the more might be. But at the end of the day, um, my sense of self-worth is no better than yours or no more important than yours. And so if I'm leading, I have to be mindful of the fact that this notion of dignity of needing to show regard or genuine respect for other people's dignity is is the essence of having a healthy relationship with people. If I step all over your dignity, uh, I've lost you, you know, and if I have power, you may not tell me I've lost you, uh, but you're not a happy camper and you're not going to be giving everything you have to give. So it's really critical for leaders to think about humility in the sense of really honoring and supporting other people's dignity as they go about these interactions. And that's been no more important at any other time in history really than right now, right? With uh, the Me Too movement, with the social justice movement that's going on, uh, dignity, as you put it, that that's kind of at the root of, of both of those issues, right? It's at the root of almost everything that goes wrong with human beings yeah. <laughs> or human behavior, I should say, our interaction. So, yes, you've pointed out two of the really important ones, the, um, the Me Too movement, certainly, which um, most of that has come out of workplaces, the social justice movement where, you know, we're looking at, uh, say, the criminal justice system and other kinds of um, systems and organizations that may not really be providing uh, equality or a just opportunity for people. Uh, you even look at our national political discourse and how divided we've become. And a lot of that is a result of not so much policy disagreements, because I think we've always had some of that um, between, say, liberal and conservative, But what we seem to have lost is an ability to talk about these differences, but in a way that doesn't violate the dignity of somebody who has a different belief. So what we've done is kind of create opposing teams and a sense of, you know, if we don't agree, we're enemies. When that, um, you know, that's neither true, nor is it going to help us have uh, a healthy conversation so we can resolve some of these differences and solve our problems. 
Oh, no, I love that. I love that because that is so spot on, especially the the national political scene there that you're talking about. Um, you know, but this humility, I'm going to go back to this humility piece a little bit deeper here because, you know, this is something I've run into a lot with uh, leaders I work with is this overwhelming need uh, to to seem like they have all of the answers all of the time and being almost unwilling to admit when they don't know something and they need to rely on somebody. So where does that ego really come from in leadership? How did that get ingrained in what we think leadership should be? I think a couple places. One is it's an older model of leadership and it may have had uh, validity at a time when organizations were very hierarchical and the knowledge resided at the top. Um, you know, you think of some of the earlier industrial manufacturing operations, for example, where, you know, someone working on an assembly line had a part of the job and didn't necessarily need to know anything other than that one part of the job. And so you had supervisors and levels of managers above that who had broader knowledge about the organization. And they might have felt, you know, father knows best kind of thing. Um, we've moved away from that in a huge way over the last 20, 30 years, but our, our approach to leadership has lagged. So as we became more service oriented, you know, much higher proportion of our uh, economy now is built on services, whether those are financial or whether they're restaurants and food services, hospitality, airline services. I mean, so much of what uh, drives the economy in, in the United States and indeed in a lot of the developed world is on services now. And when that's the case, you've got people who are working the front line who actually may have a lot more knowledge about issues than those who are two or three levels removed because the people on the front line are dealing with customers or they're dealing with vendors. They hear the needs and concerns. They uh, have a first, you know, first line view of what the company isn't doing that's, uh, that's maybe troubling to some of the people they're interacting with. So they really know uh, the story in a, in a different way. And for a leader to assume that he or she has all the knowledge is really to invite problems. It costs respect because the employees know better. They know that we don't know everything. Uh, and they may feel that they can't make the suggestions or give the recommendations that the company needs because the leader is potentially so arrogant they don't want to hear it. Or if they give them critical feedback about something in the operation, uh, if the leader kind of jumps all over them, they're not going to do that again. So this notion that the leader has to be all-knowing and all-powerful uh, is a very dated model, and it actually interferes with, with strong leadership in most companies today. Uh, the other place it comes from, though, is some people's personalities. Uh, some people want power, and they want to dominate, and they are drawn to leadership because they have some authority over other people. And those can be individuals who have a hard time making that adjustment because they don't want to, they don't want to loosen up. They don't want to relinquish uh, that kind of control. 
And, and what I would suggest is that having authority and being in tight control are not necessarily the same thing. Mm, I like that. I like that last part, especially. And, you know, you did a good job of talking about some of the kind of negative impacts of not being able to, uh, you know, put your ego aside. But what are some of the benefits of when you do? I would imagine it makes you a little bit more uh, personable, a little bit more approachable, uh, feeling a little bit more human to the people who work with you, right? Well, both the research and the practice would show that when you uh, operate with leader humility, you create thriving organizations and great results. And let me just talk a little bit about that, Earl. So one of the things that struck me when I really got into researching this was, you know, the Gallup organization, very well known, runs a, a national and an international survey every year on the level of employee engagement. And they define engagement as people who not only show up for work, but they're really um, actively interested in what they're doing. They're trying to give their best to it. They would go above and beyond the call of duty. So, you know, the higher level of engagement, that's what you're getting. And at the lower levels, you get people who hate their job and can't wait wait to leave and are actively looking for another job. And then moving uh, up a notch from that, you have people who may not be looking. They'll stay because they need the job, but they're phoning it in. They're punching a clock. They're doing the minimum they have to do in order to keep that job as opposed to going uh, above and beyond any anything above that. So that is kind of the range of engagement that Gallup is looking uh, at and uh, the latest data I had before publishing the book was from 2019, I believe. And the United States, and they survey, you know, 30, 40,000 people each year. And in the United States, we peaked uh, that year. We had the highest level of employee engagement ever in the United States at 34%. Mm-hmm. 34% of the employees across the country were engaged. That means 66%, you know, two thirds of them virtually are not. They're, they're basically phoning it in, as I said. They're showing up, uh, you know, punching a clock, but they're not really giving their, their best to the job. So that's a huge opportunity cost, and that's where the payoff of humility comes into play. Because you have to step back and say, all right, why is it that people are so disengaged with their work? Is it the nature of the work itself? Is it the relationship and interaction with people? Is it the culture? And we have other research that shows that the primary reason people leave jobs is dissatisfaction with the supervisor. And the second, dissatisfaction with the culture and the company. So when we look at those things, it gets back to this issue of leading is a relationship. And if the leader respects and supports the dignity, the sense of self-worth that people have, they are going to turn around and be much, much more engaged, um, much more appreciative of that leader, much more excited about the work that they're doing, and they're going to give as much as they can. So the benefits, I mean, the, the upward possibilities with this are just so clear from the data. We also have data that has looked at um, organizational performance, if you will. Um, I, I piggybacked on some work by Jim Collins, best known for his book, Good to Great, almost 20 years ago. 
And he was, as far as I know, the first person who really provided the evidence that leader humility matters. And in his, you know, amazing longitudinal study, he looked at organizations, he paired organizations that were already good. And then he tracked them for, you know, like 15 years, I believe it was. But he looked at um, which of those organizations sort of stayed the same at the good enough level and which ones broke through and became phenomenally great as measured by financial performance and growth. And the two, the, the big predictor was leadership. And the leaders who led the organizations that became great had two qualities. They had strong drive, which we associate with leadership, and we would think that they should have strong drive, but they also had a deep personal humility. So most of these leaders were not well-known. They weren't charismatic necessarily. Many of them were on the quieter, introverted side, but they had this personal humility that allowed others in the organization to thrive. And because others were thriving and the leader was more personable, if you will, uh, the organizations began to excel. Um, We have some contemporary examples too. One of the um, executives I interview in the book, and in fact, he wrote, I twisted his arm to write a chapter, and that's Alan Mulally, uh, often described as the greatest leader uh, in the last 20, 30 years of, you know, a U.S. business. And he was CEO of Boeing Commercial Airplanes and then later became CEO of the Ford Motor Company right in the Great Recession. Uh, Bill Ford called him and begged him to come help save the company. And this was the only one of the big three auto manufacturers that was turned around without government bailout money. And in his eight years at Ford, which had 300,000 people, dealerships around the world, supply chain around the world, um, Mulally turned that company around by implementing what he calls a working together management system, which is based in leader humility. And he has a set of expected behaviors uh, that he required of himself and all of his executive team and then managers all the way up and down the chain. And his, he has a chart on what those behaviors are. And it begins with people first, love them up. And it goes to everybody is included, uh, you know, respect, listen, and support each other, and on and on and on. And he really walks that talk himself and insists that everybody in his leadership team do the same with each other and with their teams. And what that did was to create a much more transparent and open culture that allowed Alan to figure out where the problems were. He has a saying, he says, you can't manage a secret. And if you rule by fear and intimidation, what happens is you have a lot of secrets in the organization because nobody's going to bring a leader bad news. But if you create this more open trusting, transparent culture by supporting other people's dignity, then the secrets come out in the open and you find out where the problems are and then you can work together uh, to try to fix them. So, but a part of that, when I say creating that um, culture, that trust, requires that leaders admit they don't know everything, admit when they make mistakes, uh, accept the bad news. And I think key to Alan 
breaking through that culture at Ford was when he began to hear bad news about things that were going wrong with deliveries or with the engineering side. And instead of jumping all over people, said, thank you. Now, how can we fix this? Who can help us on this? And began to pull the energies of the group together uh, to start solving problems and moving the company forward. Just an amazing story of, of how he turned Ford around. Yeah, oh, definitely. And you said so much there that was so valuable. And, you know, I think at the root of a lot of it is, and, and it seems like Alan was deeply in touch with the answer to this question, but it really starts with knowing yourself and knowing who you are, right? Very important. And I would say he does uh, seem to have a really good handle on himself. I think he's just an exceptional leader uh, in in terms of having a philosophy very similar to what I'm uh, talking about, which is why I reached out to him to describe his system as chapter eight in the book. Um, but yes, you need a lot of self-awareness. So one of the things I mentioned in the book is that whenever we meet a leader, whether it's, you know, a new president or a new CEO, or we're, we're told we're going to work for somebody new, there's three things that immediately come to mind. And we might not ask these out loud, Earl, but they really are on our mind. And one of them is, who are you? You know, what kind of person are you really beyond the name? You know, what are you really like? And then the second question is, where are we going? You know, what are you going to be asking me to do? And, you know, is it going to be too hard or too much change? Uh, you know, where, where are we going? And then the third one is, do you see me? You know, do you get uh, my own needs and interests uh, where I might want to go? Or am I just a cog in the wheel to you? Um you know, in terms of what I'm doing in the organization. So those are really three powerful questions that leaders have to answer and the way they behave and the things they say are the answers to those. So in terms of who are you, who I am is the answer. And it doesn't take long for people to really begin to zero in on where's my ego? How big is it? You know, is it getting in the way of us getting things done? Am I too arrogant? Am I too defensive? Uh, those are things that will affect our working relationship. Um, and and on, on top of that, we're looking at what kind of integrity do I have? Uh, can you trust me? Do I seem like a straight shooter in terms of what I what I tell you is what uh, actually comes to pass? Do I follow through on commitments that I make to you? Or do I seem to be kind of someone who's going to cut corners and be shady? Uh, do I look to advance people who cut corners and are shady? So people are always watching leaders and this who am I piece, uh, who I am, is such an important part of, of whether we support others' dignity. If I, if I make verbal commitments to you and I don't follow through, I've just damaged your sense of self-worth. Um, if my ego is so large that I'm stomping all over you, I've damaged your sense of dignity. So that's an important part of this uh, this topic. Well, yeah, and I, I would say, I mean, I agree 100% with everything you just said. You know, I would add to it there, at least again, this is my experience, is that it helps the leader plan their development. 
knowing who you are or knowing who they are, I should say, because, you know, one of the things that I run into, I don't know, maybe you've had these same similar experiences, but when I go to work with a client for the first time, it seems like the bigger the bookshelf behind them, the steeper the hill is going to be to climb. And here's what I mean by that is I've run into a lot of leaders that treat leadership development books and uh, tactic books uh, sort of like cookbooks, you know, they'll go through the John Maxwell books and they'll be like, oh, well, John Maxwell says do this. And they'll start using John Maxwell jargon or they'll get the Simon Sinek book and they'll say Simon Sinek says do this. And, and but it doesn't work that way. You have to know your leadership style and how you can be authentic with the people and the way you lead, right? Absolutely. And I, I think that uh, tactics are much less important than a wholesome heart, for want of a better way to put it. And, and I think the, the main heart piece that we have to, there's two of them. One is, you know, a wholesome set of values. I mean, if you get someone, you know, who simply wants to destroy people, that's, uh, you know, it's going to become evident pretty soon. But assuming most of us aren't like that, it's really about understanding what goes into another person's sense of dignity. And I haven't talked about it yet here, Earl, but you know, as you know, in the book, I have a chapter on unpacking dignity. And there's, you know, there's really a need for leaders to understand that. And I'll kind of go back to your earlier comments about the Me Too movement and social justice and uh, national political discourse as examples. But you know, this idea of human dignity rests on two components. One is kind of the basic, uh, the sense that we have that life itself is valuable. And we, we uh, as a society, have lots of debates around the borders of that. So, you know, the right to choice or the right to life uh, movement is really this, you know, when does life begin and it's valuable and we should honor it. At the other hand, we have debates about, well, should someone with a terminal illness uh, who's in a lot of pain have a choice that they want to end their life a little early? Uh, is that okay? Uh, why is it we think suicide is bad? Uh, so those are all indicators that fundamentally we, we value life. We think that there's something really special about that. And so as humans, part of our dignity is my life is valuable. I expect that to be treated um, well in the criminal justice system. I expect it to be uh, treated well in terms of health and safety issues at work and so forth. So for the most part, I won't say it's a given, but it's common that we would kind of honor that in how we treat people at work, how leaders interact. But there's a second piece, which is not the foundation, but it's the building on top of the foundation, or sometimes I call it a backpack. We've all got a backpack and we're, we're carrying it and other people don't necessarily see what's in it. Um, and that really is made up of everything in our life experience uh, that has sort of touched us emotionally. We might have pride about it, or we might have some sense of shame about it. But the things we have an emotional charge over are in that backpack, and that's really our personal dignity. So it could include, you know, I'm proud of the fact that I'm a woman. 
somebody else would be proud of the fact that they're a man, or there may even people uh, who, you know, in this non-binary age we're in, who who have gone through a transition and they have pride in themselves in a different way than what they were born as. Um, we have people who are proud because of a particular race that they are. If people are proud of their education, proud of the nationality they have, uh, part of the country they live in, the language they speak, the faith that they are, um, you know, and on and on and on. So those are some experiences around which people can have pride. Or if the culture kind of, you know, puts it down, they might also have some experiences of having been shamed for that. And they might, you know, feel... Uh, you know, in their backpack, that this is kind of an issue that's sensitive. So we all have that. We have experiences as well. You know, was I playing the guitar growing up? Was I an athlete? Uh, You know, did I, for example, live in a trailer? Have I been homeless? Uh, I've been surprised to learn that about 16% of our homeless population in my town is working full time. Um, you know, I was picking up a former student one day at her apartment. Um, she was coming to help me do some work and early on a Friday morning, I drove by to pick her up and across the street under the freeway, I saw an encampment starting to wake up and get ready for their day, was surprised to see several people kind of smoothing back their hair and smoothing down their clothing and clipping on office badges. How many people do we know that may sit next to us at work who slept under a freeway at night or who don't have enough food to eat? I mean, we don't know. And yet these things are in our backpack. And so a lot of conversation that we have that can seem judgmental or could be putting down certain uh, traits or certain human characteristics can actually violate another person's dignity because they got something in that backpack that you don't know about. So my suggestion to leaders is to broaden our minds and realize that the the nature of humanity is much more diverse uh, than it used to be or than we might think about and to be very careful of things that could be um, either a power play or a put down Uh, of people. And, you know, the other thing with this is even if the person you're talking to, you know, hasn't been homeless, hypothetically, they may have someone in their family who has, Um, or they may have someone in a family with a disability, for example. So a lot of our comments, particularly when we're leaders, because we have power, uh, need to be uh, very thoughtful. Uh, particularly if we're, you know, you never want to tell jokes at other people's expenses. You never want to make disparaging comments uh, about people. You know, we've had a lot of uh, conversation about political correctness or identity politics. And I think those are shorthand ways of saying, I feel some discomfort (laughs) with the way we have to kind of be careful these days. But what I would suggest to you is that Um, all we're talking about is human dignity and every single human has the right to self-worth. And so if I'm saying things that are going to hurt that person's self-worth, 
I really can view that as an opportunity to say, gee, I'm sorry, help me understand more about your background on this or what this means, because we all have so much to learn about each other. Mm. Again, a lot there and, and a lot of great stuff. And as again, listeners, uh, we're with Dr. Marilyn Gist, uh, author of The Extraordinary Power of Leader Humility. And, and I want to touch on something you did just mention there about like these wide ranges of experiences and all that. And, you know, you mentioned earlier in the book, some of the people you talked to uh, that you interviewed uh, for the book. And... Mm. There's a very wide range of industries represented here. You've got uh, cruise lines, you've got uh, Starbucks, coffee companies, you've got, uh, we mentioned Alan Mulally, we've got Foot Locker Apparel, uh, I mean, you've got medical doctors in the Mayo Clinic. So you, you've got a lot of society represented by different industries in here. Is there any place that this doesn't work? Wow, <laughs> that's a good question. I would say no. Now, you know, the way you put it in practice may vary a little bit from one industry or company to another. But I think the answer to that question is, is this a principle that makes human beings tick? And my answer is yes. And it not only applies across industries, as you've noted, this applies to families friendships, neighbors, uh, you know, medical interactions we have. It applies everywhere. Anywhere you have two people who have to communicate and be in a relationship around something, then you've got two people who both have dignity. And whether you do or don't have power over the other person, you're going to facilitate that relationship if you communicate to them in ways that always support their sense of self-worth. Um, and, you know, that's just, I think it's a fact of how human beings react. If you start stepping all over my dignity, uh, I am not going to like you as much, and I'm not going to want to be, you know, in relationship with you. And if I have to, we're going to have, you know, limited contact, and I'm not going to go out of my way to help. So in that sense, I do think it's universal across industries, but also across every other way in which we relate to people as humans. And I agree with you completely. And, and I think the other thing is, is uh, sometimes the, the subtle impact it has and just it doesn't take a grand overt gesture to care about somebody else and show your humility and, and kind of. Uh, pay respect to the other person's dignity. Sometimes it's those things that we don't even realize that we're doing, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, one of my biggest role models in life was my dad, who was a hero in my mind and, you know, really uh, did some amazing things with, with his career and his life. And yet I was always struck by his personal humility in the sense it didn't matter whether he was talking to a custodian or the guy who came to pick up the garbage in our neighborhood or you know he he circulated with some dignitaries he treated everybody the same he treated everybody with a sense of respect for their sense of self-worth and their dignity uh, and it was just an amazing role model to watch that 
And as a child, I didn't understand the power of that, but I really came uh, to see it as a great asset as I I was uh, in my first leadership role, making some mistakes that lots of other people may have made themselves. But, you know, I didn't start out really getting this. And, um, you know, it was part of my own growth curve to realize that when you're in leadership and you have power, it's even more important to be gentle with how you uh, how you speak to people and to support their sense of self-worth. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the one thing that, uh, you know, I think a lot of people don't necessarily associate those qualities with military leadership. But I mean, that's 100% at the root of it. I mean, the the leaders that we in the military circles, the veteran circles that we really love and remember are the ones that, that did all of this. You know, a lot of people remember uh, former Defense Secretary James Mattis. Um, but one of the things that made him, you know, being a former active duty Marine, one of the things that made him kind of a legend wasn't everything he did on the battlefield. I mean, obviously that. There's this famous story of him as a general. I think he was uh, one, maybe two-star general at the time, uh, stationed in Quantico, and it's Christmas Eve, and he shows up at the barracks and relieves the uh, individual on duty and sends him home to be with his family, because uh, something a lot of people don't know about uh, uh, General Mattis, Secretary Mattis, you know, he's never married, he doesn't have kids. But his whole thought process behind that was, I don't have a family at home. You do. I can pull this duty. I want you to go be with your family. Yeah, such an amazing, humble uh, gesture that I'm sure, as you mentioned, this is a story that's been passed around. Doing one small thing like that uh, gets shared hundreds of times yeah. and and it follows you. And in a similar way, doing something in the reverse direction gets shared a hundred times. It follows you too. So, uh, but it, but it is relatively easy, you know, when you when you understand that others' dignity matters, uh, it's relatively easy to support it. Yep, that is it. That is it. I think that's the the key takeaway. There is is humility is uh, it's just powerful. It's it's almost like a super drug, right? It really is. And, you know, and it's not at all inconsistent with having strong standards and being, a, you know, being confident, being strong, having high expectations, uh, holding people accountable. All of that's fine. And you can do it in a way that supports their dignity. You can let them know when they're falling short, but you make it about the behavior, not about the person or personality. Uh, you provide, you know, explanations for how to do it better. You give them the resources uh, and you can stay on top of it. So it doesn't mean you can't manage in a stern way, a tough way. Uh, it just means that you do it in a way that doesn't personally uh, violate people's dignity. Hmm. Love it. Love it. Well, Dr. Gist, we have been talking now for a little over 40 minutes and it's just been great conversation. You've got a wealth of knowledge on this and it really shows. I, you know, I'm, I'm taken back to the old Albert Einstein quote that says, if you can't under, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. And I think it's very, very apparent that you understand this well enough because I think you really brought it home for a lot of folks. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. 
so before we work on wrapping things up here, is there anything we didn't get a chance to discuss that you would like to share with the audience before we go? I would mention just two things. Uh, one is that, you know, in the book, I talk about six keys to leader humility, and I think we have touched on many of them. But I do want to focus a bit on uh, the two keys that answer people's question around how you're treating me. How, how do you treat me? Uh, or do you see me, which is how well you treat me. And one of those is what I call generous inclusion, uh, which is really overlooked by a lot of leaders. And we think of inclusion or we talk about it a lot with diversity, equity and inclusion. But I mean it much more broadly than that. I'm really getting at who are all of these different stakeholders that I mentioned earlier that leaders have and thinking about the relationship that you have with all of those different groups and being mindful that when you're making decisions or creating new processes that are going to have an impact on any of those stakeholders that you want to be inclusive. You want to have some way of, you know, drawing a boundary broadly enough that they're on the inside of it. And it doesn't mean you sit down to have a meeting with, you know, a thousand people, but it does mean that you probably need to pick up the phone or set up a Zoom or have some sort of way of sharing what's coming down the pike with them and getting their input and listening to it. And maybe you have to go through two, three iterations of figuring out, all right, how am I going to modify what I was thinking about so that it supports the needs and interests of this other stakeholder group. So generous inclusion is really important in honoring other people's dignity. Uh, and some signs that we might not be doing that are when we start to get complaints that people were left out or bypassed or they weren't asked their opinion or they found out of some benefit they could have had if somebody had communicated it to them. So a lot of times we're just so goal-oriented and we're, we're focused maybe on my team, my employees, and, and what I'm trying to accomplish for the organization, but we're not thinking about these other stakeholder groups who will be impacted by what we're doing. So I just wanted to kind of highlight that. I think that's a big uh, way that leaders can up their uh, humility, their support for others' dignity is by being generously inclusive as they go about the work that they're doing. And then the final thing I would say is, uh, you know, just amplifying something I said earlier, which is that this isn't limited to leadership. This applies to what I would call rank and file employees and how they interact with each other, with their peer group. Uh, it we can take it out of the workplace and think about it uh, with our families and family relationships, friendships, neighbors, uh, all of the above. So, you know, this idea of supporting others' dignity, having the personal humility to realize that everybody's sense of self matters as much as my own. Uh, and when we can kind of live that, we're going to make a much better uh, road for ourselves and a much better world. I agree with everything you just said wholeheartedly, especially that last piece about building a better world. And um, yeah, and, and I'm hoping my listeners uh, have taken all of this to heart and understand how powerful this can be. 
and are chomping at the bit right now to get a copy of the book, maybe find out more about you. Uh, so how can he do that? How can he find out more about Marilyn, what you're doing, how to work with you and how to get a copy of the book? Well, thank you, Earl. So, uh, the, probably the best place is my website, which is, uh, That's one word. Um, and there are some revisions, uh, underway right now that will go up on Monday. So if you jump on it today, be sure to check back next week, uh, because there will be more information about some upcoming offerings, uh, that include some assessment tools for leader humility. There's a basic version and an advanced version for people who work with others. If you'd like to benchmark how you're doing against a sample of leaders that we normed this on. Uh, those will be available. There's also a webinar that I'm holding uh, with Alan Mullally in May, so there will be an announcement on the website about that next week, uh, as well as just some general information on uh, keynote talks and retreats and whatnot that I, I offer. So um, that's kind of where it is. There's also a lot of good blog information. At least I've been told it's good. It's not my judgment, but <laughs> I've been writing on some subjects for a number of years. And so there's a good library of information on uh, quite a few things. If people are interested, uh, you can check out the index there and click through to um, some prior posts. I love it. I love it. Well, Dr. Just, thank you very much for being with me and my uh, audience today. This has just been a great conversation and appreciate you sharing your, your wealth of knowledge with us. Well, thank you so much. It's a delight to be here. I'm honored, Earl. Wish you the best with this. Oh, well, thank you very much. And listeners, uh, thank you for being here with uh, Marilyn and I for uh, this last 50 minutes or so here. I hope you did take a lot out of this. I hope you take advantage of uh, those links. They'll show up in the show notes. And a lot of those things will be active by the time that this airs. So you'll be able to take full advantage of those. And uh, especially uh, the upcoming webinars. Um, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns for me, you know to reach out at burden.command at gmail.com. And let me know if you have any guest ideas, if you have any story ideas, if you have anything you'd like to see me cover on here that I haven't covered already, burden.command at gmail.com. I want to say again, thank you all for going out there and making sure that you're uh, rating, subscribing, reviewing, and sharing the show with folks you know. It uh, helps all the algorithms, as I say, just about every episode. Uh, so great ideas like Maryland's can get spread far and wide, and you have a role to play in that, and thank you for taking that seriously. Uh, with that, I appreciate your time, and I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Ravelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electric acid. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. 
It's a talk show covering the changing world around us, from renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed.